The Core 360 belt is the best aid to train the abdominal wall. The Core 360 is a patent-pending, first-of-its-kind training belt that helps you move, breathe, and perform better. We use the Core 360 belt with almost every patient at Winchester Spine and Sport. The biofeedback is second to none, and it's an amazing way to teach proper respiration and can be even used during higher-level movements in the gym. Teaching proper respiration is about as fun as a rash, but with the Core 360 belt, you take all the headaches away. Visit core360belt.com and use the code GESTALT for 10% all off all belts. Ohm track sensors not included. Again, visit core360belt.com and use the code GESTALT for 10% off. Enjoy the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, Brett, we are in Idaho Springs, Colorado. So, man, I've heard so much about this workshop that I've never seen in person, and it lived up to the hype. So we're here at Extreme Footworks with uh, Sean Eno. Uh, he basically builds the best orthotics in the world. Yeah. You've been through a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And uh, so uh, you've been on our list for a while to, to be down here and to see your workshop and to see how it all works. And, I mean, it is impressive. To say that this is a work of art and these these uh, these little things that go in the bottom of the shoe are truly a work of art so uh that, that's Thank pretty you. awesome so sean we're, we're going to start today so you're a pedorthist what the hell is a pedorthist so a pedorthist is one who conservatively treats the foot through the use of custom foot orthotics and shoe modifications and then i'd like to say that um we gathered a little bit of soft tissue experience in this office too we treat some neuromas up through the foot with some tooling and myofascial release but it's our goal to change the way that someone moves through stance phase with a brace, basically. And so we're lumped in with the um, prosthetist and the orthotists. We're just basically body bracers and we specialize in feet and lower quarter. And what goes wrong? You know, like so, you know, as a species, if, you know, we would we would say, you know, we're born and, you know, everything is uh, quote unquote neurologically perfect at that time. Um, as we move along in our life, what, what requires us to need an orthotic down the road? So I like to tell folks out the get-go that we were never meant to repetitively stand and walk on man-made surfaces. The, the health of a foot comes from the maneuvering of that foot over a variable terrain and also the pirouetting of the body over that foot. So, you know, we have this redundant standing, walking forward type life that we've built and we've made everything hard and flat. And if you just peel back life a couple hundred years, we were walking over terrain that required different positions of the foot beneath the, the talus basically. And that adjusting to position created intrinsic strength in feet. This is without even going into the discussion of uh, the next point will be like deformities and things that really require orthotics. But like anybody even with really good biomechanics and good feet who say takes a job for the post office working at a sorting station for 20 to 40 years is going to one day go to the Dr. Scholl station, go to their doctors, say, my feet are killing me. What can you do? And the reason those feet are killing them is because they've gotten weak inside shoes on redundant man-made surfaces, and now they're just getting pounded by their workstation. 
So that's the first thing I tell them. The second thing is we're born to a rounded womb environment, right? So ontologically, many of us have small moms and that can be a player, but we also see curves and twists and leg length differences kind of run through families. So the question is, is it because all the moms had this size womb or is it because those types of biomechanical deformities are somewhat congenital or running in families? But if you are from, say, a smaller wombed mom, you may come out of the womb with more curvature, particularly in your tibias, and you've got that, what, five and a half years roughly to mm-hmm. rotate down to the transverse plan, plane, and most folks don't get there. So as a result of tibial varum, they are predisposed to walk on the outside of their feet and they have a pronation requirement just to get down to a flat man-made surface. I use the analogy, imagine if that same set individual with moderate tibial varum walked across the infield of a Major League Baseball stadium, they would leave these perfect little orthotics in the dirt, right? Where the dirt filled their arches and the outside of their feet sank deeper in the the dirt than the medial sides of their feet. And we get no ground adjustability anymore. It's like getting slapped in the bottom of the foot with a frying pan. So if you've got more curves and twists in your lower quarter, then the demanded range of motion out of your feet to find foot flat, which is the transverse plane, which is a plane tangential to Earth's gravitational axis, basically. We call it level, right? You put a marble in the middle of the floor and it doesn't roll anywhere. That requires that pronation. They're, they're going through eversion, pronation, and we get a couple subsets from that. We get the overpronator, who then unlocks the foot and, and can't resupinate correctly for toe off. Mm-hmm. And we get the underpronator, someone who doesn't possess adequate range of motion in their feet to make up for their tibial varum. So they remain supinated and walk on the outside of their feet. So it, it's like an augment, you know. If everyone's in the park, their biome- on, the, on the grass, their biomechanics doesn't look that bad. You put them on the institutional floor and you're like, ooh, ah, ooh. That's why I'm always fascinated by the airport because it really brings out the worst in biomechanics. That's absolutely Tom uh, Michaud here talks about uh, this researcher named Rausch that looked at uh, different socioeconomic classes. And what the paper talks about is the people that um, you know were barefoot early on, how they actually developed three arches of the foot. And like the higher socioeconomic kids who, you know, they were, you know, they have shoes on at a very early age, how they develop with a flat foot. Whereas everyone was always thinking like, you know, ontogeny and things like that. However, like footwear actually is playing a huge role in those first like six years. Yeah. Yeah. And have you ever noticed how your two and three year old take their shoes off at any moment they can? Right. And you can't find their shoes because they're like... I'm going to hide these over here because I don't want to wear them anymore and kind of foil mom and dad into finding them because at that age, they're just on autopilot and their brain's telling them this is not good. And they right. take them off and mommy's like, put your shoes back on, you know, and, <laughs> and that story gets told over and over in many households, I think. Right. So um, let's start by just saying, what is your fascination with the foot? Like, how did you even like begin this journey? Well, I was... <sighs> in college and I was riding home from school one day on a motorcycle in downtown Kansas City. I was doing my undergrad at UMKC and I got hit by a car while riding through town through an intersection and my um, tib-fib about four inches above the maleoli was smashed almost to 
non-connectedness by my engine block and a 79 Cadillac. So I was immediately uh, given a very poor asymmetric gate. They barely saved the foot and reattached it. And I began to struggle with all kinds of issues. And the real blessing part of this is that right out of that doctor's office, you know, you go in there and you're 19, like, what the hell do I do now, doc? And he farmed me down the street to an old school pedorthist who built the best orthotics I've ever had. Wow. So fast forward a few years, I'm pursuing my degree and trying to find work in my field. And I'm just breaking down all over biomechanically. You would think it would just be the foot and the leg bothering me. But I ended up with a massive amount of hip and low back pain. And um, therefore, we couldn't... Um, Basically, I couldn't function without it, okay? So in essence, and uh, therefore, I needed that guy's services. And when I finally did something stupid and threw those in the trash because they were falling apart, you know, your, your, your patients come in and the front of the orthotic just wants to <laughs> fall off, etc. Threw them in the trash and then I started falling apart because they were doing way more for me than I gathered at that time. So I went to look for him. He passed away. And I struggled for a little while to find anyone that could do anything similar. I went through podiatrists, no offense, I went through quite a few chiropractors, foot levelers, all this garbage. And when I found someone that could do it right again, they were in this town and they were running a little boot manufacturing facility. And because he was having problems with custom made boots that he made, he backed his way into Pedorthist. Uh, by having to figure out what these feet were doing in the shoes. And that's how I came to be a pedorthist. I said, you need to give me a job. Nobody knows about this. Like, there's just nobody doing this kind of work. We need a lot more people with this skill set. And I took a traditional apprenticeship in this town and passed my boards about six months later, and that was it. That's crazy. When yeah. you and I teach together, you know, we, you know, we, one thing that the chiropractors or physical therapists want to hear is, what is the foot type or what are the problems that we're going to run into that we're not going to get better with manual therapy and rehabilitation? And you and I, over the years, had kind of come up with four things. We came up with uh, tibial varum and torsions, yep. uh, functional halysis limitus, yep. um, uncontrolled pronation, right, and uh, what was the fourth one? Um, Supination. Four foot varus. Yeah, four foot varus. Four foot varus. And another one we could throw into the mix is... Um, the, the Morton's toe, because what Morton's toe sets up is a situation where the first ray can't plant the MPJ down on the ground at the same time as the other four met heads. And there's a further travel into pronation with the Morton's toe. And that's what Rothbart writes sure. about, which is just simply so many feet have a short first ray. And so they really destroy that first ray because of that extra distance traveling to the loading surface. Right. Has the Rothbart idea or concept, is that still alive and well? Or, yeah, yeah, I work with Robert Lardner sometimes. He's a big fan of him. He likes a low, long, corrected arch with a Morton's extension on it. He doesn't like the high-arched, closed-packed position espoused by, say, 
some of the labs we know that talk about full contact casting and how, you know, we do want a full contact arch. And so in his case, he's always sending me slightly pronated casts, like somewhere halfway between this non-weight bearing style that we cast in and the full on stand in the box concept, which we know captures too much compensation. Right. right. So they tend to be lower back under the sub tailor joint, but then run out under the MPJ. Mm hmm. There's been some research recently, and uh, I'm not saying I agree with it, but uh, I'm curious to hear what you say, where a prefab or like over-the-counter orthotic can sometimes outdo like a, a, a real orthotic or a, a custom orthotic. So when you see research like that, like what, what, is, what do you think about that? Um, basically, I think that unfortunately there's just not a consensus on how orthotics should be constructed mm -hmm. you've got the whole podiatric industry that that they they're kind of guided by a couple shall we say flaws in their biomechanics so root orion and weeds biomechanics right they they talk about some things like Medial heel skiving, for instance, is one of my pet peeves because I think all of us, when we're trying to put a heel down on the ground, are seeking the uh, closest facsimile between the plane of the base of the heel and the supporting plane. We don't want that foot walking on the outside or the inside of the heel. And if you sky the cast, which is akin to rear foot varus, you're already casting that foot into rear foot inversion, right? You're basically creating a block that prevents them from reaching the transverse plane. So there's one huge one. Another one is because they that industry has um, decided that the most effective cast is an open chain plaster bandage wrap cast, or another method is pushing the foot in kind of a box or using a cane to evert the lateral column, we get long, low arches out of that type of cast. Because you can imagine if you're not using the windlass effect uh, um, to create an arch, say the you know DNS short foot, for instance, where we can see what that arch would look like if it weren't under a burden and relaxed. So your patients raise their toes up and you see what their arch should look like. Um, we just have these labs that there's two, a two-pronged approach to it. One is the blanks that they use to mill out the shells for these standard podiatric orthotics are often not as thick as, say, a higher-arched individual. If you can imagine, the thicker the blank, the more the blank becomes waste in the trash and the less of the blank becomes the device, they have gone to what we call an arch fill. So they'll take an arch unless you are adamant and say, I want this original arch, I want it high. They'll fill the arch of the cast so that their blank will cover the height of the midfoot. So most of the podiatric orthotics that we're seeing these days are too long and too low in the shell. And then they choose, because it's easy to mill on a mill, polypropylene they choose these hard shelled materials and they don't offer eva most podiatric labs don't offer even offer an eva product because then they can spin them off this mill for you know 10 20 bucks a pair and sell them to the podiatrist who somehow in this country got positioned as the preeminent orthotic <laughs> providers right and you're supposed to go to them but if we had a room full of 
10 podiatric patients, different podiatrists, each with an orthotic from that different office. And we had them stand in front of us barefoot with their feet out and put their orthotics on the floor. The variation in the appearance of their feet would be much greater than the variation in the appearance of their respective right. orthotics. Well, I mean, that's a problem we run into. The orthotics oftentimes are just too rigid. Like the acrylic ones are obviously too rigid. Um, and EVA offers like the perfect uh, density of substance where you know, you're still able to offer support, but then it is like the perfect amount of forgiveness, you know, because if you take your patient's orthotics out of their shoe and you let them stand on it, oftentimes you'll see, like the acrylic ones are obviously too rigid, but then the other ones without naming certain names, yeah, they just pancake out. And then right. you see, basically at that point, you just have a glorified, you know, right. Dr. Scholl's foot pad, basically. Right. And that's where, it, this is the other complaint I have about these labs is they want all this business. And they want to just spin these orthotics out the door. But the last thing they want to address is the need for extrinsic postings. You know what I mean? Like they don't mm -hmm. want to take mm -hmm. the extra time to install met pads, do cutouts, do first ray extensions, do valgus posting, do rear foot posting. And a lot of times that doesn't turn out well. So in essence, their version of preventing excessive overpronation is to catch the heel at an angle. Mm -hmm. And to stop it from fully everting to the supporting surface versus this is where I do agree with some unnamed individuals where we need to really pick up the foot just proximal of the medial heel underneath that fleshy portion of the foot that will take more pressure that's literally under the talus. It's a subtalar joint mm -hmm. and hold their maximum correction beneath the subtalar joint. Right. And then, as you said, if they can get the first ray down, which that's the fallacy with too long of a shell, right, is that they're left with a prime met primus elevatus, basically, and they never can firmly get the first on the ground. That's also why a lot of podiatric orthotics will lead to neuromas, because they're subtly pitching that foot into forefoot supination at toe off versus when you draw the foot into the short foot position and cast that image you have a shorter, taller arch, and you'll notice in arch shapes that the arch center is actually about two thirds of the way towards the heel from the front shell edge instead of dead center, which is most of the time what you'll find a podiatric orthotic is a dead center arch. Well, if you look at the profile of this foot model right here, it isn't a perfect half sphere, right? It's more of a kind of a, uh, an altered, I forget the ge geometric term for it, but it's more of like a teardrop where it's taller right under the subtalar joint and then it really needs to follow the, med the first ray declination angle down to either zero or your first ray post if they have a Morton's extension. So you, you want to control subtalar pronation, but then still give them every opportunity to evert and lower and load both the MPJ and the FHL. And then you throw the monkey in the wrenches, they've got, what, 0.8 seconds in a stance phase to get that done? <laughs> so if they have no range of motion, limited range of motion, or structurally fixed into supination, they, they have almost no chance to utilize the first ray properly. And that's where we get that other type, mm -hmm. where they're underpronators. They don't pronate sufficiently for the mechanics above the ankle, right? So you've got a rigid, high-arched foot, 
and a moderate to severe tibial varum, how does that person load the first ray when they don't have enough eversion range of motion to get to the transverse plane they're standing on? And that's a real, that's a foot you and I have talked about quite a bit because yeah. you see that foot cosmetically, especially from, from behind, and it looks like it's basically inverted. It, right. And it is. And I remember having this conversation with McPoyle years ago because he's like, yeah, that foot needs eversion. But I remember like trying to explain to him, like, if you understand joint play, though, like if you joint play that foot, obviously they have really stiff articulations in the mid-tarsal joint, midfoot. But then like their subtalar joint, I mean, they're hypermobile into eversion. Right. So then you get to this crazy dilemma of like, okay, so do we still pitch them into eversion or, you know, are we going to get creative with how we post the rear foot and the forefoot? And uh, I mean, and that's the most difficult foot that exists for all of us because, you know, what do we do with it? You know? Yeah. I mean, if they don't have any range of, well, or a limited range of motion, then you're restricted in how much position change you, you can acquire for them in stance phase. Right. They're only going to tolerate so much. The other thing I've kind of like really kind of learned in the last couple of years is the formation of the sustentaculum tail eye is different in everyone also. So like you have this uh, beautiful little uh, shelf on the calcaneus here and how that develops and forms basically uh, determines, you know, how many articulations you're gonna have in your subtalar joint and other things. But anyways, the overly pronated foot that you and I have seen where the navicular is just sitting on the ground, yeah. they're most likely gonna only have one joint in the subtalar joint. Therefore, structurally, they're, they are just crushing the soft tissues of the medial component of the foot. The spring ligament, the you know, the plantar fascia, and all those. That spring ligament runs underneath the anterior facet, doesn't it? Yeah. It's supposed to spring on top of it. But what they found is there's actually in the spring ligament, there's actually not that much elastic fibers. So it's essentially kind of like a hammock. Yeah. And then that hammock, though, over time, because of creep hysteresis and set, is yeah. basically now just all, it's just an elongated, elongated mess, you know? Yeah. So uh, because of that, um, these these foot, I'm now like learning to appreciate where I think we all have a moment in the world of rehab where like, oh, we, we don't need any support there. We can teach them how to exercise. But then like, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, some of these people, and we've all seen them, uh, like where literally their navicular is sitting on the ground, like they are going to require some kind of support. And you are only fooling yourself at that point if you, you know, don't think so. And back to your original question, which is how does the clinician or the, the patient care provider decide when their modalities for rehab, right, aren't enough to get the patient well? What foot type lends itself to the definitive need for an orthotic intervention? And I, I use the spinning top concept, right? So if that foot's in the ballpark of the um, sagittal plane as you're looking at them, and they're neither full, overly inverted or everted relative to that foot's sagittal plane, then you really only have a little bit of, of adjusting that you're trying to get out of that foot. And then your, your rehab and your other modalities may work. But if they are just so far you know, past the point of return where we all know a spinning top reaches a certain degree of angle and it just falls over no matter how far it's spinning. Same thing goes if they massively overpronate or they have a structural limitation like we've already discussed, Morton's toe is a perfect example, or forefoot varus, then they simply do not have the capacity to get through soft tissue to a more neutral foot position through strengthening and rehab. 
i.e. they're losing that battle because they can't overcome the forces of gravity in their foot. Right. Another one is simply where if they can't create a transverse plane out of the base of the heel, the fifth med head and the first med head in your office because of some structural limitation, once again, like forefoot varus or the high arched rigid cavus foot with a forefoot valgus, then you can say to yourself, well, this patient has no hope of achieving a full transverse tripodal plane out of their foot. We're going to have to do something or they're going to continue to over-evert or over-invert. And why does it have to be so binary? You know, like it doesn't have to be like, well, just because I'm using, you know, Sean Eno for an orthotic doesn't mean we don't, we're not rehabbing their foot and doing soft it has tissue. To be I mean, all of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a multimodal approach. Right. I think uh, it's hearing you guys riff like this is a great example of what makes you a little bit different is that I've overheard conversations that you're having with Brett about patients, literally about these things. So that's a little bit unique, I think, in building orthotic is that you're talking about these types of things of like this patient has this type of thing. Okay, well, have you checked this and that kind of stuff? And so I, I just think that that's a really unique uh, thing you usually, you know, if you if you work with somebody that's cast in orthotics, you send them the cast, they cast it, and they send it back, right? So right. this is like true custom orthotics, right? Oh yeah, because we call it orthotic therapy. Because yes. I mean, we don't you don't always get it right. I mean, sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's you know we're and they only do so much. Like the one thing I always set my patients up with is the expectation that this isn't a black and white outcome. This is just better shades of gray. Yeah. Right. You can still take 30,000 steps on Saturday and you'll be right back in that same state of dysfunction, but you will have taken two or three times as many state steps to get there mm. because you're still in compensation, but you're, you're compensating less, giving you more mileage. Mm -hmm. Or, and I'm, the three of us, I think, are all amazed at the uh, ability of the human being to adapt and to compensate to things. Like if you see the person who does have their navicular just sitting on the, the ground, you see an abductor halysis that is just like so overly developed, which is one of the muscles that's been shown to stiffen the foot of the, the arch of the foot. Yeah. So I think sometimes that's what happens too is like we put in this beautiful structural correction, but then they've had 30 or 40 years of adapting to their crappy structural situation. So then we have we gotta have another kind of adaption period that kind of has to occur for them to get used to the orthotics and mm -hmm. And, you know, if you as an orthotic therapy provider aren't willing to accept the dynamicism of your patients, meaning that this isn't also black, providing orthotics isn't black and white because you may change them with the orthotic and change their compensation pattern so much so that then you go back and reevaluate what the orthotic is and you have to change it because they've adapted and the presentation in front of you is a more pure presentation of what they would look like without some assistance. So for instance, if someone comes in and they're already middle-aged and they've had a bad case of forefoot varus and they present with true changes in the structure of the bones of their feet, then we might get X amount of correction out of the first cast, dispense a set of orthotics, watch them improve greatly, and then realize, hey, I think I could get a better cast out of this foot now because we pushed it from whence it came, right? And then you cast them again and you realize, hey, this cast looks even better than the one mm -hmm. from a year ago because you kind of tipped the scale, so to speak, and put them back in a place where their soft tissue actually can be recruited to assist them versus that tipping of the, of the spinning top where they're so laid over that unless we get them tipped up halfway, we can't get them to fire those muscles and ligaments and help themselves because they're past that point. So we get them 
back past that point towards good. And then we see, oh, wow, looks like maybe we could do even more with this foot. Do you ever, you know, have your clients or patients, sometimes they just do this naturally, but like they get to a point and you're like, you no longer need your orthotic. Like the orthotic theory, uh, therapy was just kind of a temporary thing for like a year or two, whatever. And then they discontinue, or do you feel like by the time you've decided to put an orthotic in their shoe, this is probably going to be a lifetime sentence for wearing orthotics? Well, generally speaking, my patients are older. So if I get if I get younger patients in or post-surgical patients, then there's a good chance that we can re- rehab them out of the orthotic if they're not too bad of a case. What does that mean? Meaning they're, they're not struggling with a major biomechanical deficit. Maybe they just injured themselves running. Maybe it's a chronic injury they can't get past and we need to kind of help them out to get past it. Um, in essence, if they're younger and their cases aren't that bad, they're athletic or they're post-surgical, there's a chance that orthotic can be pulled at some point. But most of the time what happens is people present in this office with blaringly obviously bad biomechanical situations. You know, we call them deformities. Now the book says malalignment syndrome, I think is what it says, right? So if they have a malalignment correct. <laughs> and they're trying to move with a malalignment, right? So knee, hip, and, and foot don't line up, then they're going to benefit from the orthotic and they should have it on much like a set of glasses for someone myopic for the rest of their lives. Yeah. What about lifespan? Like, so you, you talked about your own orthotics from your original kind of yeah. wearing out. So in a perfect world, those patients that you think are kind of, this is part of their life. Like yeah. how often should they be cast? How often are you remaking the orthotic? So we offer a refurbishment because the one, the, the one item, uh, the one component of an orthotic that sees the most wear is the cover that goes against the foot. Mm-hmm. And that's to interface and to replace nice. the factory insert, right? Because otherwise we could make three-quarter length orthotics and just plop it in the shoe's factory insert, and that's what we would use as the front of the shoe's factory insert. But it's those four-foot pieces and directly beneath the heel that completely pack out and become harder against the underlying higher-density EVA shell. So we say, send that puppy in for a resurfacing. We can resurface a pair of orthotics one or two, maybe three times in a five-year period, but most orthotics are a four or five-year equation, and then they need to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Remember that one I sent you, the lady had tried to clean them with uh, Windex or something? Yeah, and you lost <laughs> so, the top yeah. out of them, so she was sliding around all over the top of them. Yeah, yeah. At least she was honest about it and didn't yeah. blame someone else on it. But then, so then you're saying that that four or five-year route, as long as they're still happy with it and they're feeling good, no reason to really reassess or anything. You're basically just going to rebuild well, the original? Well, you, or- you can take and put them on the floor and perform the DNS short foot. You can also perform what was once called the Fowler test, which if you know you go up under great toe dorsiflexion, you're going to naturally get your arch, and then you chase the orthotic up to the arch. And if you see a gross deviation of the shell beneath their foot, meaning that they've not only just worn the cover, but they've packed out the shell then that's a visual for you to, to determine a replacement. Redo it. Yeah. Got it. Okay, we're going to play a fun little game. Okay. You ever, have you ever seen uh, Pardon the Interruption on ESPN? I have not. So basically, we're going to do like some real quick hitters with you. So we're going to throw you a diagnosis. You're going to say from the orthotic standpoint what you would do. And like we're talking like 20 or 30 seconds. Got it. So we can't ramble on. We're just going to throw it to you. We do this on purpose just to keep us all on uh, point here. Yep. Morton's neuroma. So Morton's neuroma is going to be treated with um, an orthotic that addresses why they may be over 
bearing weight on the lateral forefoot during stance phase. So we're gonna tweak the orthotic to provide perhaps more first ray pressures and guide them onto the first ray if we can. We're also gonna use a met pad to spread apart the metatarsals and unload the distal met heads. And occasionally we put wells in the covers if there is say a plantar flex met head involved. And then I would recommend to any practitioner to try to basically expose the neuroma with their fingers and tick away at that neuroma on the dorsal surface, primarily of the foot, with a blade. And the met pads go more proximal than most people think that they do. Yeah, we want to snug them up right behind the met head so that they're not standing on it with the med head, but almost standing on it with the med head. And that's why we use the pedographs that we ask you to send because your cast is basically a non-weight, non-splayed foot and the pedograph is an image of what that foot does uncorrected in stance phase. Functional halysis, limitus, and rigidus. So in that case, the way to make a person able to walk across the first more pain-free because you know we'll see an avoidance pattern for those two pathologies where they supinate and move away from the first at toe-off is to extend the shell underneath the first MPJ, the first met, so that the demanded dorsiflexion range of motion through toe-off is decreased by adding that rise over run. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus a first rate cutout. Versus a first rate cutout would demand more great toe dorsiflexion. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It's interesting though, because different experts in the world have different opinions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think the first rate cutout is for somebody with a plantar flex first met head. Right. Because then you Mm -hmm. want to drop that relative to the other five Mm -hmm. so that they don't tip and fall off of it because in most cases that plantar flex first is attached to to a more rigid medial column style foot tricky one here hallux abducto valgus bunion so bunions can happen for in both uh cavus and over pronatory feet bunions are evidence of excessive forces being applied on the first ray through toe off that's why it can happen with the supinator high arched foot too um, typically, you want to address the underlying deformity, which in most cases is Morton's toe or forefoot varus, because that continued overpronation in the forefoot is what leads to the formation of bunions. So whereas they say bunions are hereditary, they're not hereditary. It's the mechanics of the feet that are hereditary. And the loose connective tissue. And the loose con- hypermobility of the tissue. And then the foot, most feet respond in the same way, and the first ray breaks down classically into that. So there's no special treatment for uh, bunions from an orthotic standpoint. Like to give them symptom relief. Forefoot varus posting if they still have flexible bunions because you're decelerating that forefoot pronation, which is the, the, the cause that lent itself to the formation of that. If it's a rigid cavus foot with a bunion, then it's going to be forefoot valgus posting so they bear more weight under the other four med heads, right. unloading the first. Because really what breaks that toe down into the hallux abductal valgus is excessive plantar MPJ forces. Perfect. Or rocker bottom shoes, hoka, we could go yep, that route yep, too. Yeah, yeah, um, Plantar fasciitis. So plantar fasciitis is... Um, There's two classic presentations. One is the rigid foot that is a poor shock attenuator, okay? And in most cases, those rigid feet are a little bit higher arched. They don't have any calciversion. They um, basically uh, have a prominent plantar fascia band that if you dorsiflex the first ray, you see it just bow springing down there like a piano wire, right? Mm -hmm. And they, in essence, need a sweet spot in the heel to attenuate shock, uh, heel shock forces. 
And then in many cases, there is a twist component to plantar fasciitis where they go through some kind of toe uh, pronation, forefoot pronation, or, or you'll see their foot whip when, they, when they're walking. And it creates a twist component on the plantar fascia. And, and I use the dandelion analogy. You're in the backyard trying to pull that thing out straight and won't come out. You give it a good twist, it comes right out. Well, a plantar fascia will tear off the medial tuberosity much more readily if it's not just being pulled in two axes, but being twisted like a, a DNA coil in three axes. It'll pull right off the bone much more readily. So we look for forefoot varus and valgus in conjunction with... Um, plantar fasciitis and all the also the rigid cavus foot. There's also one more type. If someone really everts with the calcaneus, they're everting the medial tuberosity of the calcaneus right into the supporting surface, and that can drive plantar fasciitis. And then on your sheet, for the people who are wanting to use you for uh, orthotic fabrication, what are some of the modifications that you can mark in that? So you want to order sweet spots for the heels, yeah. which introduces an eighth inch poron component. Poron's an awesome shock attenuator and it puts an interface between the shell and the foot so that they don't end up subsiding through the top cover and standing on the more rigid EVA shell. And then um, a lot of times the plantar fascia groove is required because they've got that significant bowstrung plantar fascia yeah. and it's got to sit somewhere and they don't like pressure on it from the orthotic. Mm -hmm. But if you just detune the arch, you're taking away the correction you're looking for. So you build them a little channel for that to sit in. And then you look for things like Morton's toe. You look for things like um, Morton's neuroma. You look for things like forefoot varus and valgus, and you and you post appropriately with that as well. Tarsal tunnel. So tarsal tunnel, in my mind, is in the same category as um, neuromas and metatarsalgia. It's kind of a a pressure on the met heads, and you want to unload that pressure through a combination of um, recognizing whether the pressure is due to a Morton's toe or due to, uh, in essence, for some reason, they're bearing way too much pressure under two through four, and you want to employ a met pad, possibly pour on caps to give them even more cush up front with the orthotic, and then occasionally, depending on the presentation of the met heads associated to those tarsals, um, wells if they have a prominent plantar flex met head. And in a chronic ankle, you know, inversion ankle sprainer, would you ever uh, just take that piece of information and consider a rear foot valgus post to, or so you... it, it, some of like, I, I understand what you're saying and I have to stand, I have to peel back and look at the fixed position of the foot in standing walking, right? And if it coincides with excessive calcaneal inversion, then we want to use a rear foot valgus post. But if you can see that they stand straight on that calcaneus, then what we do is we buttress the heel. So it's like the flared shoes we talked about earlier. It's widened out at the base of the orthotic so that when, as soon as they heel strike, it forces them medially. Now, if that's insufficient, then the next attack is a lateral rear foot post, valgus post. And Sean, those are the main ones that we wanted to talk about, but um, how, let's say there's no treatment going on. Let's just say that we're on a deserted island. There's no one to treat. All we have is your orthotics, basically. Someone's got a, like an acute case of uh, uh, plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendon problem, whatever it might be. If the orthotics are perfect, how, what's a reasonable time frame for us to tell our patients, like, it should be calmed down by when? And I know... Are we using plantar fasciitis? Let's use plantar fasciitis, yes. Okay, so 
Most folks don't stop walking when they have plantar fasciitis unless it's severe, right? Mm -hmm. And severe plantar fasciitis uh, feels like you stood on some shards of crystal when you first get out of bed. So basically, the the orthotic has to um, be in play for anywhere from four to six weeks in that case. And it also has a lot to do with the soft tissue intervention and what other practitioners with other skill sets than mine are doing to relieve tension in the lower quarter. Because a lot of times the fascial plane is basically recruited from further away than just that one location. And I try to remind folks, you know, that the plantar fascia aponeurosis is just a big water fascia. Mm -hmm. And if it's been in compensation for a long time, it may have lost range of motion to adhesion. You can see plantar fibromatoses, and you can run a blade through their arches a lot of time and you get Rice Krispies, you know, all along it. So you want to do all those things and support that arch. Uh, like in a really difficult flared up Achilles tendon case, what do you have for uh, orthotic therapy for, for that classification of patients? Typically, the, or, the real bad Achilles ten, tendonitis tendinopathy case can be traced to some form of misposition of the heel somewhere through stance phase. And believe it or not, the number one driver for um, Achilles issues is the foot is either overpronated through forefoot at toe off or underpronated, i.e. supinated. So they're not getting the heel to rise up over the forefoot in its neutral and the Achilles bands are being strained in inversion or eversion so they're not equally loading and grabbing the heel. Some of them are slack and some of them are totally overloaded. And our patients get hung up on what they find on their x-rays or what their podiatrists are telling them. For example, heel spurs, okay? So we educate them on like that is most likely not their pain generator. But the question I have for you, Sean, is it ever their pain generator? So heel spurs are, you know, the um, periosteum around a bone is really what that um, medial plantar fascia bands attaching to right mm -hmm. and as it tears minutely away it pulls the periosteum away from the medial tuberosity and the body's natural reaction is to fill that it's like picking up a, a, a nose tissue off of, of a countertop there's going to be a void up in the middle of it as you grab it from the center the body fills that with the spur and most cases the spur grows anteriorly and superiorly so you are not walking on that spur, but all of the inflammation as that plantar fascia threatens to tear away from the calcaneus is right there. And that additional surface area formed by the spur is the body's attempt to create a greater surface area attachment site for that medial tuberosity band in an attempt to prevent it from fully ripping off. Wolf's Law. Ever heard of it? Yeah. Uh, in the body so smart. I mean, yeah. it's just insane. So in essence, you're really not standing on those spurs, but they're a part of the problem because the inflammation is centrally located in that So the answer area. is no, basically. Yeah, in um, most cases. So why don't we switch gears? Because this is a question that Kairos and the PTs always ask. Footwear. So obviously, if we do decide to do orthotic therapy, we want a neutral shoe. Let's start there. So if we're, what are some neutral shoes that you recommend for people after we've, you know, fit them for an orthotic, we're going to perhaps have them go purchase a new pair of shoes. What are the neutral running shoes you like, dress shoes, men and women that will work with, uh, with your orthotics? So in the 
running shoe environment, I have been putting people in the Topo Ultra Venture because it has a five millimeter drop, but it has the ultra four foot toe box that many of our patients love because it's nice and square and provides a bunch of toe room. Um, I'm not a huge fan of ultras because a good percentage of patients don't, don't do well with the zero drop shoe. Um, New Balance has a fresh foam line that works pretty well. Saucony's got a couple models um, like the Echelon and their trail model, um, the Peregrine. And the uh, Asics does pretty well with the Cumulus and the Nimbus for a light cushion bottom shoe. You need more control, you could use the Asics Gel Cayano. Um, if you need basically a more straight lasted shoe because a lot of the shoes I just mentioned have a semi-curved last which means that they're not fully straight they kind of curve medially as you move forward in the sole of the shoe then we go with New Balance um, but around here uh, we don't have as much we have a lot of up and down and some pitched surfaces so I recommend um, Solomon's they've got a bunch of speed cross and and trail type shoes like that and then we'll bump up into uh, low top hikers we uh, recommend the Merrill Moab Ventilator. We recommend the Keen Targi, which comes in a low, mid, and high. Um, we also recommend the Loa Renegade. And then as we move up into boots and more control, we recommend the Loa Renegade in a mid or a low. We recommend Echo's Tracks, and we recommend um, Mindel, which has several really high-end offerings when you're looking for full control. And then uh, dress shoes, because this question. So I'm dress sure. shoes, I really I send back towards um, Echo if I can help it. Yeah. Clark's has a few offerings for the females. For the females, yeah. Clark's actually has a couple men's shoes. Um, Rockport has a decent dress shoe, although you know if you don't like their. They're hybridized. I'm gonna walk all over this European town shoe. Then you don't like. Yeah, it's social suicide. Put on a pair of Rockport. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, Your life's over. Yeah. So I, I, I just I don't want to name brand, but I throw people into the um, Nordstrom situation because Nordstrom's kind of decided they weren't gonna sell garbage and they sell the highest line shoes. And number one is most dress shoes don't come with a factory removable insert giving us fits when it comes to fitting a sport, yeah. athletic, orthotic into that shoe. And we have to back engineer into a met length dress orthotic, which gives us more or less opportunity for postings and control. It was interesting. Tom was talking to us and uh, we were talking about zero drop. We asked him because everybody was talking about it. And he said, what's interesting, he said, the recreational runner loves them. He goes, and he's like, I'm working with you know all the top Kenyans and everything. He's like, they all love a little bit of heel support. He's like the the best, you know, marathon runners in the world. They literally hate zero drop for some. It's kind of this weird irony because yeah. you think they'd be the ones who love it, right? But then, like these recreational runners, they love the zero drop for some reason. But the really great runners, actually, for whatever the reason is, they like a little bit of uh, heel rise. Yeah, and yeah. how much of that comes along with giving them a little more like landing pad, right? Right. We don't know without looking at like a really complicated system how much that's packing out at heel strike, and the forces at heel strike, say in the Boston Marathon, are just incredible. Right. Like, pounding right so they might be just feeling like they need more cush but there is something to be said in any case where you've got restricted range of dorsiflexion in say the first ray or in the ankle 
and then you place them in a zero drop shoe, you're demanding a greater ankle and, and first toe dorsiflexion range of motion. So considering a lot of what we see, which is ankle restriction and first ray hallux limitus and rigidus is, when you put them on a bit of a positive heel, you're shortening the demanded range of dorsiflexion, is particularly out of the ankle. So rigid cavus foot is not a candidate for a zero drop shoe. Right. So we did a uh, kind of a diagnosis specific little section. Now, if we had like a 30,000 square foot view of, you know, foot function and you have a foot that is unable to be the adaptive terrain, uh, mobile adapter, mobile adapter after heel strike, what does orthotic therapy have to offer that rigid foot that isn't able to adapt to the terrain the way that we would like it to? Well, so we have to believe that if we watch that foot walk across a hard man-made surface that we're not going to see ideal stance phase mechanics, right? So they're already tossed a little bit of instability. So if nothing else, the orthotic gives them a, a start from zero so that the uh, little bit of range of motion that they do possess isn't overemployed just getting their foot to a neutral position to a hypothetical transverse plane. And then as we're going from mid stance to terminal mid stance, then we have this key transformation of the foot that has to occur. And I use, use the example of a pogo stick, which kids don't use pogo sticks anymore, but we always talk about like if you were coming down and the energy that you would be absorbing in a pogo stick, that's essentially pronation. Yeah. And you're essentially using that elastic stored energy to then regird and create supination. So then if we go to that phase after the phase that we were just talking about, now at mid-stance, terminal mid-stance, when we're getting ready to prepare for toe-off, we need the foot now to turn itself into a rigid high-gear push-off yeah. lever, rigid lever. What is orthotic therapy able to offer that foot that is doing too well in the adaptive phase and now they that foot needs to be better at being a rigid lever for toe-off so it brings their forefoot to its god-given neutral which is not defined by the supporting surface but defined defined by how it grew off the midfoot basically so right. to speak right so if there is any kind of um malalignment between the forefoot plane and the supporting plane then they're going to go through an adjustment and we can do one of two things. We can g allow them to get there if they have the range of motion and most rigid feet still have more range of motion anterior of the mid tarsal line than they do posterior of it because we just naturally have more flexibility in our tarsals, right? So if they're going to get anything accomplished, it's going to be in the terminal uh, stance phase. And the other component is we're... They don't bear any weight through the midfoot ever because they don't accommodate, like we said, their foot doesn't lower, it never touches anything. We're distributing pressures off the heel and off the forefoot into the aponeurosis of the midfoot. If you took average people walking around in Idaho Springs in your town here, in your opinion, how many percent of people just off the street do you think might require an orthotic? So that's a good question because, you know, obviously we get this crazy cross-section in the, in the lab where almost everybody can benefit from an orthotic because they've been kind of told you need to go there or right. referred or so their, it's their neighbor yeah. told them. But airport here around town, it's in the 40 to 50% of people, like one of two people will 
give some type of evidence in their gait cycle that they're compensating for something? May not be necessary, but could be beneficial. Right. Like something that you, with a trained gait uh, analysis, may ferret out, you know, an asymmetry in the way that they're moving through stance and swing phase on either side. But if we peeled it back and said, all right, well, I've only been in practice for, say, three, four years, and I'm only really adept at identifying gross deformity, then we're talking more like 15%. Right. Yeah. Uh, so resources. So you and I have talked over the years. I mean, obviously, we both think a lot of uh, Thomas Shaw. Yeah. You, we also uh, both like Val Massey's book. And yeah. What else am I missing? What other books do you like? Well, there was a couple books early early on, and... Um, and I wish I could just spit off the names of them um, without looking at their titles. But one, I think, was by Rene Calais. The, the f- oh, the, yeah, the medical doctor, the artist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he did a lot of stuff on the foot. Um, that one's called Foot Pain, actually. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, our latest Pedorthic 101 book isn't so bad. It, it kind of goes through some basics on what the idea behind a, a casting for and providing an orthotic is. Um, Introduction to Pedorthics, it's called, and that can be found at the pedorthics.org website in their uh, in their bookstore. There, basically, there isn't enough for it. the question. The answer to the question is there's not enough literature, mm-hmm. right? When's your book coming out? <laughs> I gotta sit down and write it. I gotta find somebody to make all these. <laughs> they don't write for. themselves. No, do they? they don't. But I'm definitely looking forward to that phase of life. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, how do people work with you? What if you got some chiros here that that are, are needing some help with orthotics? So, in essence, contact the lab or reach out through through the website to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we we pride ourselves in requesting more data than most labs, right? So, one of the things that I think is ludicrous is that if you've got a case that's just not meat and potatoes, and you're not sure what you're looking at or what the solve is why wouldn't you at least have the capacity to send some still photos and some video of the patient's gait, kind of introducing that patient to your pedorthist at your lab so they can see the third dimension? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're asking for prints and we're asking for a semi-detailed design form, but we don't want to make it complicated for you. What's really critically important is your cast. And we'll help. we're happy to train you through that to make sure you're getting a good image of the foot. And then giving us enough data to identify what your patient's going to need if you can't identify it. Mm-hmm. I love it. We have a, a case that Brett and uh, Sean are working on. And so we're still trying to figure out how to, how to make that all work as far as a case presentation. But I think it's going to happen. So I think we'll, we'll have start to finish. And we're it. sitting on one with, uh, with Tom, Tom, too. That's right. Yeah. So uh, I, I think we'll, we'll, uh, I'm going to make uh, Brett, when we get back, cast a couple feet. And we'll show that process. And yeah. then uh, now we have the back end with Sean. So Cool. Start to finish, we'll be able to show it. So I'm always blown away by how intricate these are, but they're not uh, overbearing. That's what I love about your design too. You know, like it's very, you, you say it's not meat and potatoes, but it is meat and potatoes. You know, it's the, the big findings in the case and, and uh, the, the best things you can do for it. So. Yeah, you unravel it from the big stuff first, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you can't really tell exactly what's going on. I like to think that we get a highly compensated person in, their gait's compensated, their presentation's compensated. And it's complicated and it's hard to discern what's the driver. So a lot of times I say, take a leap of faith, get a set of orthotics in there, get them compensating even 20% less. And a lot of times that magically unclouds the image of what the real dysfunction is Mm -hmm. because they can get themselves so worked around a problem 
that you can't even identify what the real problem is until you get them out of some of the compensation. The other thing too, I think uh, the quality of these, I mean, no one puts more time into the quality of orthotics than Sean. The other thing is the price point is so awesome mm-hmm. to me. Like, you know, like I think we charge three fifty or something like that. I mean, like three hundred fifty bucks for this five years. That's death to the patient. Five yeah, years worth of an orthotic. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's not what you're charging me. That's like to the patient, which I think is out of this world. Because if they, you know, pay cash at the podiatrist, I mean, this, this is somewhere between five and eight hundred dollars. Yeah. You know, for plastic junk. For junk, <laughs> and I mean, this is such. And what I found is patients actually they they expect that amount of money. That is not out of line for them. You no, know, so not at all. And too, I mean, I, I send my orthotic castings to Brad just because he's better better at doing it. Yeah. He's done it long enough. And I have uh, I just had one that I sent to you, Jeff. And he was blown away by like how intricate, how much time Brett took to do it, uh, explain the process. And then when he got it back, like how it was actually like what they what they talked about, you know, like the, the rubber met the road. And so uh, that's that's just awesome. Yeah, you know, the, it's a dying art in this, in this mm-hmm. sense that there aren't a, a lot of people left that want to work that hard to make them correctly. Mm-hmm. And it, it's been a struggle through the 18 years the lab's been in existence to find the right individuals who share a passion for it, who may have seen so much other garbage out there that they want to do things in a certain way. And we're kind of running short on pedorthists in this country. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not enough of us. Well, it, we're trying to convince it to move to Troy, right? Yeah. I mean, that's going to happen. Yeah. And then once that happens, then we'll have the full over. we'll have a full uh, Gestalt Education uh, Pedorthus track and the whole nine yards, and we'll, we'll get some more people doing it. So, wow. uh, anyway, Sean, uh, thanks for showing us. Thanks your, a lot, yeah, Thank you for yeah. Thanks a lot, oh, yeah, Thanks always. You're, you're a true. Really appreciate you're, you guys coming over. Uh, oh man, yeah. you're a true artist, and uh, man, there's so much good stuff in that podcast that oh, yeah. turned out awesome. So, uh, go back and listen to it again, guys. And uh, is it, what's the website? Extremefootworks.com. Beautiful. I'll I'll link it in the in there. So uh, I forgot to shout out our our uh, uh, last coffee shop, yeah. but uh, Westbound and Down, uh, awesome coffee. Bloom uh, Bloom Coffee and uh, our Sweet Bloom. Uh, our our boy Nick Hedges suggested it, so uh, it was awesome. Yeah, so. good good food in town here for the few offerings that we have. I love it. It's an awesome town. So make your way up here to Idaho Springs on your way to Breck. All right, guys, have a great day. We'll talk soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gasol Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, For a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.